Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the backstory. Looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. Introduction Part 2 We were talking about a very powerful book that was coming out. And here it is. Translated into English with very thin pages, the New Testament and the Hebrew Tanakh combined into one book. That is, the New Testament added to the Bible of the Jewish people, which Christianity calls the Old Testament. I wonder what Judaism thinks about that. This one has a green cover. It's the one I used for many years as a Christian, and it's got that curved spine of a very well-read soft cover. It's the NIV, or New International Version, a modern English translation. It's titled, The Holy Bible. It was a nice idea that God was talking directly to me through the words in this book. I liked it. And with the aura that surrounds this book and the quality of the presentation, it is easy to believe that it's holy. But then a number of years ago, it went through a transformation right before my eyes. It was when a sneaking suspicion, followed by some research, turned into the more tangible idea that the New Testament documents are a mixture of work by two different movements, two rival movements. I started reading with this in mind and seeing things that I hadn't seen before. It was like reading another book. Anyway, let's open this thing and have a look at a very interesting bit. The 27 documents in the New Testament are also referred to as books, even though most of them are letters. Reading from one of those 27 documents, or books, originally a memoir of the sayings of Jesus, surrounded by a story of his ministry, a written record of previous oral tradition, known as the Gospel or Good News of Matthew. This is a passage where Jesus is facing crucifixion, and the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, is trying to save him. Chapter 27, verse 19. Quote, While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Unquote. These infamous words are like the climax of anti-Semitism in the New Testament. This is a seed being planted in the minds of superstitious Christians around the empire. An idea that was to result in the genocide of so many Jewish people at various times over the centuries. You could say that it's just telling it like it was, and the Jews sadly condemned themselves. But is it even within the realms of possibility that this is a true and fair depiction of what happened outside Pilate's palace? 
because it needs to be if the inclusion of this little anecdote was authorised by God. Let's pull this apart a bit to consider the nature of this piece of literature. Firstly, a bit of background information, and then I'll deal with the characterization of an entire race of people. The crowd that was there. All the people, it said, as if we're looking at a crowd representative of the Jewish people of Jerusalem. Just six chapters back in the same book of Matthew, Jesus was greeted by a very different crowd in the same city. Entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Matthew 21, verse 1. Quote, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Unquote. What are we supposed to make of this? Did the people of Jerusalem go from this to wanting Jesus killed in the most torturous way, he being a highly regarded prophet from among their own people? Was there some sort of absolute transformation in their regard for him? Or does one of these accounts falsely represent the attitude of the Jewish people towards Jesus? And if this is the case, which one? Matthew, like the other Gospel accounts, was originally a story compiled from the recollections of Jesus' followers. Were Jesus' followers anti-Semitic? No, they were Jewish. So the authentic material is likely to be the material that isn't anti-Semitic. It doesn't talk about the Jewish people as if they're the bad guys, because Jews probably wouldn't do that. And it's not just the anti-Semitism in the Crucify Him scene that identifies it as a later edit. It's also the simple fact that these words make reference to the Jews as another people, another people to the writer, and to the perspective of the perceived audience. True, in the Matthew account, they're not referred to as the Jews, but in the account of the same story in the book of John, they are. Later I'll be looking at how the books of John and Acts make many references to the Jews as if they are foreign to the writer and lying in wait to kill people or generally cause havoc. Further support for the idea that the people of Jerusalem didn't turn against Jesus is in the book of Acts and in other early histories outside the New Testament. In Acts, after Jesus is crucified, his followers continue to meet in the temple courts day after day, teaching in his name and the people are positive towards them. Acts 2.47 says, They enjoyed the favour of all the people. Chapter 5, verse 13 says, quote, No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Unquote. So that's the people of Jerusalem fearing the religious leaders who were in collaboration with the Romans, while holding this movement in high regard we can see a distinction between the religious leaders and the people who were not against this new movement that was all about a man they're supposed to have hated so much. But in the book of John, there is no distinction made between the Jewish authorities and the people. 
After Jesus is crucified, his disciples are said to be together in a room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Just the Jews. That's chapter 20, verse 19. That's like an account of Nazi Germany that says the people of Germany were afraid of the Germans. It only makes sense when you recognise that these words were written by someone who wasn't a Jew and was prejudiced against them as a people. Jesus' brother James was leader of the movement in the early days directly after Jesus was crucified and he was also highly regarded by the people of Jerusalem. Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History the first extensive history of the church, written in the 4th century, quotes from the early Christian writer Hegesippus, and I'm not sure if that's how you say it, I've only ever read these names, and then from the Jewish historian Josephus. Firstly, quoting Hegesippus. I'm going to cherry-pick here. I'll give the reference after so you can read the whole passage if you want. This is Christian material using Christian terms for a Jewish setting. Quote, James, the brother of the Lord, succeeded to the government of the church in conjunction with the apostles. He was holy from his mother's womb, and he drank no wine nor strong drink, nor did he eat flesh. No razor came upon his head. He did not anoint himself with oil, and he did not use the bath. I just thought I'd throw that bit into. He alone was permitted to enter into the holy place, for he wore not woolen but linen garments. Skipping a bit. Now some of the seven sects which existed among the people and which have been mentioned by me in the memoirs asked him, What is the gate of Jesus? And he replied that he was the Saviour. Skipping a bit more. Therefore when many even of the rulers believed, there was a commotion among the Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees, who said that there was danger that the whole people would be looking for Jesus as the Christ. Coming therefore in a body to James, they said, We entreat you, restrain the people, for they are gone astray in regard to Jesus, as if he were the Christ. We entreat you to persuade all that have come to the feast of Passover concerning Jesus, for we all have confidence in you, for we bear you witness, as do all the people, that you are just and do not respect persons. Therefore, Persuade the multitude not to be led astray concerning Jesus. For the whole people and all of us also have confidence in you. Unquote. That was Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History, Book 2, Chapter 23. A bit further on, Eusebius quotes from Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 20, Chapter 9, describing how the high priest set out to have James and some others put to death. And people in the city were angry about this and tried to stop him. So that's an interesting contrast. The people want to save James, the brother of Jesus, not crucify him. So information from other sources sets the scene. Both before and after Jesus was tried before Pilate, it seems clear that he was the leader of a valid and popular movement among the Jewish people of Jerusalem. So, back to our story in Matthew, and the crowd that shouted all the louder, Crucify him! This crowd is, of course, meant to be the Jews, and Jews, I believe, have always felt free to disagree with each other, and they most certainly do. But the impression here is of a large crowd, representative of the Jewish people as a whole, 
all spontaneously agreeing and shouting replies in unison, like extras in some sort of B-grade movie, and saying what the chief priests persuade them to say. Pilate asks a question, the crowd replies. Pilate asks another question, the crowd replies. But why, asks the good Roman governor, as the crowd, a unit, a caricature of evil, becomes more insistent. And then at the end of our little story, we've got the whole crowd forming a sentence in reply to Pilate. So, it is possible on rare occasions when the majority agrees, and there's an obvious answer, that a crowd might appear to reply to something as one. And that reply is probably limited to single words like no or yeah, boo or yay, that sort of thing. If it's not a known thing like a song or a liturgy, a single word is about all a crowd can manage. A whole sentence is definitely out of the question. So it doesn't say one person said it and the crowd said yeah. It says, all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. For those who are not aware of the discipline of biblical exegesis, there is the literal principle which says, quote, We assume that each word in a passage has a normal literal meaning, unless there is good reason to view it as a figure of speech. Unquote. So, all the people here does sound like a figure of speech, right? But why is that? It's because we immediately see that it's an unrealistic scenario and we draw that conclusion. What if it said, all the people said, no! Well, we would take that to mean that the crowd was calling out no because that's possible. And we stick to that first principle of the literal meaning. Because the Bible means what it says. So, can we say it's a figure of speech? If one person said it and the crowd called out in agreement, a drunk, racist eyewitness might say all the people answered with those words, and it'd be a very inaccurate report, using a figure of speech. But this is meant to be God's account of proceedings as well, which is why biblical exegesis comes into play, and why it's meant to be above human stupidity. Maybe I'm missing something here. There might be a technical, exegetical solution to this that was worked out a long time ago. There are very intelligent people who believe these things. My guess is that they didn't go with the literal option. So, if we're not going to look at the possibility that Matthew has been edited, we need to edit the literal principle of biblical exegesis. We assume that each word in a passage has a normal literal meaning unless it makes the Bible look stupid, in which case it's a stupid figure of speech. No, the figure of speech option doesn't make sense of something authored by God. It is simply inaccurate and sloppy. I know I'm nitpicking here, but let's leave no stone unturned. There is another alternative if you're a stickler for biblical exegesis. The crowd could have started chanting those words. That one person who thought it was a good idea to say this might have started the chant and persisted until the crowd picked it up. Now let's see how this fits with our narrative. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. 
All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Spectacular crowd control. Even if he had a big sign with the script and a stick to point at the words, it'd be a bit hard to work up a chant quick enough for this to be an answer to what Pilate said. If you watch Mel Gibson's movie The Passion of the Christ, you'll notice the scene finishes without the crowd making this declaration. In the movie, there's been some chanting of the word crucify up until this point. They've got the Jewish mob in their mad frenzy, true to the atmosphere depicted in the Bible. The priestly crowd controller is there, sh uh, showing some impressive talent. Everything's ready for it, but then, the crowd isn't given their big line to chant. The producers are clearly quite happy with the anti-Semitism, but it seems they decided it'd be a bit tricky to make this work. To get the chant to move from crucify to a complete sentence. But it's in there. It's part of the story. The only way that I can think of where the crowd could have replied to Pilate like this is if it was pre-planned. They would have had to know what they were going to say, and they would have to have practiced. It'd take a few rehearsals and a conductor, but it could have been done. If this really is true, this is the sort of solution we're after. So the idea might be that they had made preparations, and they were already planning to say this at Jesus' trial, no matter what Pilate said. So then, on the day, they could have said it all together once, in reply to Pilate, just like it says. Imagine that. It would have been quite the surprise for Pilate. Maybe that's why he was so impressed that he did what they wanted, and the bowl of water might have been to splash his face to get over the shock. There's only one other way that I can think of where all the people could have said this, and that is if they all replied to Pilate with those words, but spontaneously and out of time with each other. Things get pretty weird when you've got a book that can't be wrong. So, Pilate might have had his bowl of water, but he definitely wasn't ready for some sort of zombie apocalypse. No, this Christian drama requires Pilate to be confronted with relatively normal humans that communicate clearly and in time to force his will with their angry determination. And were these people angry? If you have seen The Passion of the Christ, you know the scene. The way they portray the anger of the mob is in keeping with the text. This crowd is full of vengeance on this man, willing to condemn their children to get a guilty verdict. But what were they so angry about? We know the religious leaders were offended by Jesus, but where's the motive for the people here? You just can't make this look real. It's either a pre-planned chant by a crowd that's so incongruous that even a bad movie that likes this sort of thing won't touch it, or they were zombies, or it's a lie, along with the rest of this material that denigrates the Jewish people. I know it's sacrilegious to say these things, but how sacrilegious is it to say that God authored this death sentence on the Jewish people, this anecdote on behalf of those who want to usurp a Jewish prophet? It's about who killed Jesus, 
The Jewish story has been edited by Gentiles who want to blame the Jews. Gentiles are non-Jews for anyone who's not clear on that. And if it's a lie, the truth must be something different. That means the Jews probably had another perspective. Like Luke 18.32, where Jesus says he will, quote, be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him, unquote. So placing the responsibility with the Roman authorities and suggesting that they want him handed over in the first place. This speaks of betrayal to the Romans and is much more likely to be an original article. John, a later composition, has Jesus speaking as if the Jews are responsible. In chapter 18, verse 36, when he's talking to Pilate, quote, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. Unquote. I'm reading from my old NIV translation of the Bible. In their latest version of this verse, they've changed the Jews to the Jewish leaders, which is not true to the Greek source material they're working from. So it looks like this is an edit rather than a translation. That is, anti-Semitic edits of antiquity being edited by modern translators to smooth things over. People don't mind so much when the edit sounds better. But changing one and a half words is about all they can get away with these days. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's still an original story in there. Earlier in the same chapter of John, the Jews who betrayed Jesus were accompanied by a detachment of soldiers who would have carried out the arrest under Roman orders, not as pawns of the chief priests. So let's have a look at the man who would have sent those soldiers, because we haven't finished with Pilate yet, the Roman governor. Let's look at some background information on him. Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, chapters 3 and 4, tells of Pilate's insensitivity and cruelty towards Jews and Samaritans, ordering his soldiers to attack and kill protesters and pilgrims. He describes times when Pilate did things particularly to offend the Jews, like setting up Roman images or effigies in Jerusalem during the night, knowing this would deeply offend the people. Philo of Alexandria says of this incident, quote, He, not more with the object of doing honour to Tiberius than with that of vexing the multitude, dedicated some gilt shields in the palace of Herod in the holy city. Unquote. Philo then uses these words to describe the character of Pilate. Quote, his corruption and his acts of insolence and his rapine and his habits of insulting people and his cruelty, and his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending and gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity. Unquote. And that was on the Embassy of Gaius, Book 38, 302. And that first fellow quote was Book 38, 299. According to Josephus, Pilate was even recalled to Rome for going too far so he may not have been in the habit of washing his hands to maintain his innocence or to give the people the impression that his hands were clean. It might have come across as a touch hypocritical. So after he got out his bowl of water and said, 
I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. The crowd, in unison, of course, could well have cried out, Well, that doesn't really make sense, Pilate. What about those other times? Passing sentence was the sole prerogative of Pilate. It's unlikely that he cared about injustice on behalf of a Jew, and he definitely didn't care if the Jews got upset. A reading of Josephus and Philo suggests he would have been far more likely to goad them than to appease them. The idea that the Jews forced his hand or that they provided the incentive is unlikely in the extreme. Pilate didn't care what the Jews thought. But here's the thing. He would have cared about the potential for an uprising when he saw a prophetic figure with a significant Jewish following. As a prophet, or a messiah figure, or a rabbi, whatever term might have applied in first century Judea, this man we know as Jesus had a substantial following among his people. And that was before the words Christ or Christian were used. The first time people were called Christians, according to Acts 11.26, was in Antioch. That's up in Syria, after churches were established among the Gentiles. So what was this Jewish movement called? It would have had a name. Roughly 25 years after Jesus' crucifixion, two other names are being used at the trial of a man called Paul. A quick biased introduction to Paul for those who are not familiar with his work. Paul is the star of the New Testament, one of the perks of writing almost half of it. He plays the role of a prophet, sharing his inside knowledge on God's opinion, passing on far more theology than Jesus does. He's the hero of the book of Acts, where the disciples of Jesus quickly move aside to make way for this man, who never met Jesus, but he said he did in a vision, so he explains everything we need to know about Jesus. Paul was Jewish, but he was also a Roman citizen of Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. Initially, Paul makes an entry in the book of Acts as an opponent of the disciples of Jesus, working with the chief priests to identify and condemn people who belonged to a movement referred to as the Way in chapter 9. He then has his conversion experience, tries to link up with the disciples, and then after an interlude, he's off on his missionary journeys, sent by God and the Church of Antioch to preach the message of Jesus. Known as the Apostle to the Gentiles, Paul founded a number of churches around the empire. Okay, back to the names again. In Acts 24.14, Paul, at this trial, calls himself a follower of the Way, in agreement with the earlier reference in chapter 9. He's on trial and making a defence against charges brought against him by the high priest, who has travelled from Jerusalem to Caesarea for the occasion. Now earlier, in the same chapter, at this same hearing, the lawyer that speaks for the high priest says that Paul, as someone teaching in Jesus' name, is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. So this lawyer from Jerusalem uses a different name to Paul. Actually, Paul is the one that chooses to use a different name to the lawyer. A lawyer from Jerusalem is going to be using the name for the Jesus movement that the Jewish people were familiar with. Probably the name the followers of Jesus would have been known by when Jesus was on trial. Even if Paul was using another name for his Gentile converts. 
So, Nazarenes. If these are the original followers of Jesus, it's their story that the Gospels and Acts are derived from. Along the way, the Gospels have been altered to denigrate the Jews, and Acts has been hijacked to bypass them. Presenting the good Gentiles receiving the good news about Jesus from Paul, and the bad Jews rejecting it. Have a look and you'll see it's a theme that is repeated time and time again. This sort of thing has been quite effective in obscuring the Nazarenes, almost to the point of making them disappear. The information that remains about them is like a footnote that nobody notices. Although the distinction between the Nazarenes and Paul and the Gentile churches in New Testament documents is quite apparent when you have a look for it. But there are also descriptions of the Nazarenes elsewhere. I spoke earlier of a huge hole the church left in the history of pre-4th century Christianity. Well, what we do have available from the 2nd and 3rd centuries is predominantly, surprise, surprise, the letters of the church fathers. What a coincidence that their writings are the ones that survived. These men who the later church deemed to be orthodox. Orthodoxy was already a thing, but its recognition by the 4th century church maintained its meaning. And these men seem to have been surrounded by silent heretics on all sides. Together their work provides the greatest quantity of material available for historical inquiry into those early church times. And within these letters there are many negative references to Jews as another people. No convincing indications of a positive relationship between the earliest church fathers and the people who knew Jesus or people who knew people who knew Jesus. I'll back this statement up in a later episode. Ignatius of Antioch is a church father who lived early enough to have had such relationships. But when you read his letters, he's more interested in talking about his martyrdom than preaching Paul's theology. Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles, who were sent out from the same city of Antioch, this relationship is quite clear. Paul is revered by the church fathers as the principal herald of the message that they are all devoted to. Irenaeus of Lyons, another church father, goes all the way, throws caution to the wind, and simply calls Paul the Apostle. Okay, I've got a thing about Paul. I get sidetracked easily. But the church fathers absolutely and universally revere him, while at the same time a lot of them have a special dislike for Jews. No doubt there were many non-Jewish people in the time of Ignatius who believed in Jesus and liked Jews, who might even have been familiar with the Nazarenes, might even have been among them. But I believe the majority of the letters by the early church fathers represent one side of a rivalry between their churches and the Nazarenes. So I said earlier that the church of the 4th century had incentive to change the story, but so did the earlier churches. So who knows when alterations that denounced the Jews were made. Tracing changes to documents is a huge task. But I believe a book has come out recently that does just that, which I plan to look into. Anyway, it's within the writings of the Church Fathers that we find descriptions of the Nazarenes. And you guessed it, negative ones. Letter 75, Jerome to Augustine 4.13 and this comes out of 404 CE. Quote, 
Why do I speak of the Ebionites, who make pretensions to the name of Christian? In our own day, there exists a sect among the Jews throughout all the synagogues of the East, which is called the sect of Minai, and is even now condemned by the Pharisees. The adherents to this sect are commonly known as Nazarenes. They believe in Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, and they say that he who suffered under Pontius Pilate and rose again is the same as the one in whom we believe. But while they desire to be both Jews and Christians, they are neither one nor the other. Unquote. What have we got here? They were throughout all the synagogues of the East, not churches, and they were also known as Ebionites, according to Jerome. Although taking other references into account, people referred to as Ebionites may or may not have been distinct from the Nazarenes. Irenaeus against the Heresies 26, and this is AD 180. Quote, Those who are called Ebionites agree that the world was made by God, but their opinions with respect to the Lord are similar to those of Serinthus and Carpocrates. They use the gospel according to Matthew only and repudiate the Apostle Paul, maintaining that he was an apostate from the law. As to the prophetic writings, they endeavour to expound them in a somewhat singular manner. They practice circumcision, persevere in the observance of those customs which are enjoined by the law, and are so Judaic in their style of life that they even adore Jerusalem as if it were the house of God. Unquote. So they were using the Gospel of Matthew. Something tells me their version didn't have the Jews starring as the killers of Jesus. They didn't like Paul, and they are condemned here simply on the basis of being Jews. Eusebius of Caesarea, Ecclesiastical History, Book 3, Chapter 27. And this is 4th century. Quote, The evil demon, however, being unable to tear certain others from their allegiance to the Christ of God, yet found them susceptible in a different direction, and so brought them over to his own purposes. The ancients quite properly called these men Ebionites, because they held poor and mean opinions concerning Christ. For they considered him a plain and common man, who was justified only because of his superior virtue, and who was the fruit of the intercourse of a man with Mary. In their opinion, the observance of the ceremonial law was altogether necessary, on the ground that they could not be saved by faith in Christ alone and by a corresponding life. There were others, however, besides them, that were of the same name, but avoided the strange and absurd beliefs of the former, and did not deny that the Lord was born of a virgin and of the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, inasmuch as they also refused to acknowledge that he pre-existed, being God, word and wisdom, they turned aside into the impiety of the former, especially when they, like them, endeavoured to observe strictly the bodily worship of the law. These men, moreover, thought that it was necessary to reject all the epistles of the apostle, whom they called an apostate from the law, and they used only the so-called gospel according to the Hebrews, and made small account of the rest. The Sabbath and the rest of the discipline of the Jews they observed just like them, but at the same time, like us, they celebrated the Lord's days as a memorial of the resurrection of the Saviour. Wherefore, in consequence of such a course, they received the name of Ebionites, which signifies the poverty of their understanding, 
for this is the name by which a poor man is called among the Hebrews. Unquote. So, keeping in mind that these passages were written by people who were prejudiced and may not have known a lot about the Nazarenes, differences can be identified between Christianity and what the Nazarenes believed. And there's a tendency to balk at these differences because they don't line up with Christian doctrine, which presents an interesting scenario. I imagine the pastor or evangelist of a modern-day church being transported to the time of the Nazarenes. He'd feel a bit awkward going into a synagogue. Let's say the service is in Greek and the evangelist in his enthusiasm has learnt Greek in his New Testament studies. He'd definitely decide after a while that he was in the wrong place. I can see the frown on his face. Apart from adherence to Jewish law, there would be two big differences that might make him feel compelled to get out his Bible and try to save these people from the error of their ways. They wouldn't be subscribing to the theology of Paul, and they would be putting the teaching of Jesus into practice. This Jewish community of believers was not insignificant. There were thousands of them in the very early days, and they increased rapidly according to Acts. And according to the church father Jerome, writing at the start of the 5th century, they were throughout all the synagogues of the East. Some may have been assimilated into the Gentile church as time went on, but probably not many. Jews don't lose their cultural identity like that. And the position of the Gentile church in regards to the theology of Paul, the law, and all things Jewish were in clear opposition to what they believed and who they were. The original followers of Jesus were the Nazarenes. And when you look back through Christian polemic, the Nazarenes are among the heretics. That's what I think anyway. Okay, there's more to see of the Nazarenes, including a fascinating process of spotting them within New Testament documents. But for now, I'll leave it there and wrap up this introduction. Now I've had my time on the soapbox. Let's see how I go at being objective. As I said earlier, I will start with a four dummies approach, looking at Christianity starting from absolute zero which is usually not the starting point. Even encyclopedias in their basic description of Christianity start with assumptions, like Christianity is based on the teachings of Jesus. It's the dummies who ask questions that come before that. I'll be interviewing Christian leaders and teachers to get down to the essence of Christian ideology, and I'll be doing my best to allow the flow of logic to determine the direction that this goes in, to be only seeking of a fair view of things allowing the listener to make their own judgment. How well I go with this remains to be seen. So coming up next will be chapter one. Thanks for listening.